Blog Talk Radio. We want to welcome all of you to Blog Talk Radio's Off the Shelf. We have a fabulous guest for you today. And before I start, I want to say happy, happy, blessed Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Tomorrow is Father's Day, and the fathers who take responsibility and help to lead and guide their families, you are invaluable. And and I so thank you, and I, I send out my, my special remembrance to my father who passed in 2011. But happy Father's Day to each and every one of you. And we also send condolences to anyone who has lost their father or someone they love, especially the people in the event that just happened recently in Charleston, South Carolina. We send our deepest sympathies and and, and love. And it, it, it is in times like these when you think love will not prevail, but it will. However long it takes, it will prevail. And we want to thank you again for joining us here on Off the Shelf for this Saturday uh, June the 20th, oh my goodness, the year is going by so quickly. I hope you taking the time to pause and think, reflect over your journey this year so far and don't wait until the New Year's resolutions come along. Are you on track? Is there something that you need to change? And I wanted to give you this for a great quote, something to think about. Do it now. Sometimes later becomes never. So what do you think about that? And is it something worth chewing on? The next thing before we start, we we introduce today's special guest before we do. I wanted to ask you how good of a mystery sleuth are you? I'm shifting gears a lot at the start of the day's show. And I, if you're a great mystery sleuth, do you think you can figure out Who's responsible for the murder mystery that cloaks Raymond Clark and his friend's life and love pour over me? If you love mystery and you value friendships, you value relationships, whether they're friendships or romantic relationships, and being that this is Father's Day coming, there is a complicated father-son relationship and love pour over me between Raymond Clark and his father. There's a lot going on in Raymond's life, but there are not, there are about five main characters, so you can keep up with the story easily. And you can get a copy of Love Pour Over Me, and I'd love to know if you could figure out who was that mystery, the murder mystery, who, who who's the key person before you get it, this, the book reveals it to you. You can get copies of Love Pour Over Me in print or ebook form. Anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, eBucket, you name it. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk for it. Just tell me you want to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can special order you a copy because it's carried by some of the largest book distributors in the world. So please go get a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know if you figured out. Who was that person, the murder mystery? Who was it before you got to in the story where it revealed who did it? So thank you for that. Thank you for your support. Please, again, love pour over me. Go out and get a copy. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest today. We have been blessed here for nearly 11 years at Off the Shelf to have I mean, some wonderful authors, not only New York Times, but selling authors. Some of the, our guests have gone on to appear on CNN, other t- TV One, 
and, and local television stations. Some had their own radio shows, like our guest today does. So we've had guests that have gone on to do extremely well. So we're honored to have her back with us, this special guest, today on Off the Shelf. And our special guest today is Maxine Thompson. Now, she is the author of one of my all-time favorite novels. I absolutely love this novel, The Ebony Tree. Another one of my favorites that Maxine didn't write, but... Uh, is akin to no one by Nicole Titus. They're not books that people like know big that have sold millions of copies. But I love those two novels, and the Ebony Tree is one of my absolute favorites. Now Maxine served as uh, she served our children and our families. Again, going back to Father's Day and parenting and family, she actually served our children and our families for over 23 years as a social worker in California, where I'm told it's some of the toughest, hardest social work uh, uh, situations take place in California, and we thank her for her service. And Maxine also owns the literary firm Black Butterfly Press. She is an editor and Artist First Radio host and the author of 14, 14 books. In addition to The Ebony Tree, Maxine has written or co-written, and I, I'm not going to name them all, but Secret Lovers, L.A. Blues, and Hostage of Lies. If you want a treat today, you check out Maxine Thompson online at MaxineThompson.com, and it's spelled the way it sounds, and that's M-A-X-I-N-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.com. Again, that's M-A-X-I-N-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.com, MaxineThompson.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Maxine. Thank you, Denise, and it is so good to be on your show again. I haven't been on in a few years, about two or three years, but I always enjoy coming on your show, and you uh, said a lot of things I wanted to say, like Happy Father's Father's Day to the listeners. Uh, I think my father's been gone about 12 years now. He died in 2003 at the beginning of it. And um, I know how important it is, and so many people who didn't grow up without a father, um, they, you know, they've expressed as they've gotten older, particularly men, how they feel that void in their life without having had a father. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad. I see so much of my father in me now. My mother and father were opposites, and I always say I'm not nice like my mother. My mother was this genteel kind of tea and crump lady. <laughs> And I've walked with police in the back of houses to get kids. Police had their guns drawn. Mm-hmm. I'd be walking in at them. So I just celebrated my. A lot of people don't like to get age, but they've got it sitting up on Facebook, and I can't seem to erase it. But, <laughs> you know, I just celebrated my almost to the full senior birthday. And I just said, thank you, Lord, I'm still alive because I was a fool. I worked in Detroit for seven years. That's where I'm originally from. I lived there the first half of my life. And then I moved here in 81, and I worked in children's services here for 16 years. And then I've been doing my uh, literary service for almost 17 years since I left my job. So it's, I said, boy, I've enjoyed this journey. I thank you, Lord, that I lived Mm -hmm. this love. 
Oh, well, that, you and you've done so much again, and you never know when things start out how they're going to turn out or end up. You start out in social work, and maybe you think that's all you're going to do, and then you get you, then you start writing novels, and you think, okay, that's where I'm going to go. Then you start editing, then you become a literary, and you don't. You, and I'm a literary you know. agent too. You know, I represented yeah. um, Sheila Goss, who just won. The Romance Award last year, okay. she won um, on the Library Journal. She won Book of the Year for 2014, oh my God, good and she won the Emma Award. Uh, she's been an Essence best-selling author. She has, I believe, about 40 books. When I add her little edit, her little e-books. wow, but um, okay. I had gotten her, I think, 15 book deals, and a lot of her books are different genres. That's what's fascinating with her that she can write. Young adult, young adult, street, street, Christian, romance, mystery. <laughs> so you know, she's wow. and she's all over the place. So what I did with her as a agent, I just let her do her, and I would run people down until I could get book deals. And I mean, because she would be bringing young adult to people who never did young adult. And then she's uh, she's under four publishers, and then she also has her own publishing company. So I really. You know, I'm proud that I've worked with her. Then I worked for a month, for a while with Terry McMillan's sister, Rosalind McMillan. I got her a hardback book deal. So, I, you know, that was a part that I truly did not see coming, that I would be a literary agent. And I've had a lot of writers who have only had a few book deals, but two. And then some have continued, like Suzetta Perkins. She had ten book deals with uh, Simon mm. & Schuster. So it's, wow. um, that's been a whole nother phase I never thought about negotiations. Now I'm doing trying to negotiate some um, TV shows, so that's still in the air. And I'm trying to negotiate some movies. <laughs> you know, you have to Look keep raising the bar, and then I'm trying to do my own movie from my book, L.A. Blues. Okay. It, it is really tied into all the urban cause-related things we see going on, such as um, the Charleston, South Carolina mm. um Massacre, which I am, you know, so upset, and my heart goes out to the yes. family. And, oh my goodness! Oh, the families, and then oh. I just love what they said. I mean, it has it was so raw, oh. and they all were saying that they forgive this young man, Dylan. Oh, what's his name? Roof. I just Roof, said, yes. This is this is just too much, and I do believe, as you say, love uh, con- conquers hate, but we're seeing so much hate against black yes. people in this since we've had the black president it's like it's just reared his ugly head and it's no longer underground it's just hey it's open season on blacks we're going to do what we want and it makes you feel like we are the prey and i think as writers we have a responsibility to address some of this in the writing when i wrote la blues mm-hmm. in 2011 which it was published in 2012 and it was on black expressions before they closed, uh, one of the things I was asking, and I put that in my foreword, is why is there no outcry when young black men get killed? Do they realize they're killing our eight generations, possibly? And not to look, and you know, to go into the mass incarceration and all the different things that are beginning to happen. I say we really, as a community, have to take a stand and start doing things. And and I say we got to get dangerous up in the church in terms of some of the churches have to be more aggressive in addressing these issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah. But Denise, is um, what are some of your takes on some of the things that are going on? Do you uh, write about any of these things? 
Actually, in the type of writing that I do, my freelancing is more marketing, so I wouldn't have a, a I wouldn't have a, a opportunity to do that type of writing unless I were to do it uh, with my blog. But I think some of the um, the the when people stand up, like with the civil rights movement, I don't think there was as much black on black crime during the civil rights that. We have to tackle it. We have to be equally as upset. I think right, that when a black on black crime when another too. black kills another black, we it, when that happens, we kind of go, oh, you know, it's a shame, but this happens. We have to. Uh, that I think that what gave the civil rights movement a lot of leverage. It wasn't as much black on black crime because a lot of the gangs now they weren't like they are today. So right, it just neither were the that, drugs. The drugs we, play we, a big part. We have to stand up whenever somebody is murdered, period. Not just if somebody of a different color does it, because that, that kind of, some people might look at that as a little hypocrisy. It's like, okay, so you're saying you value a life, but not if somebody of the same color kills the person. So I think that's when we have to, that's another thing that has to be examined as well. Right. But the thing with right. the, with the Charleston, you just, yes. Because it could actually weaken your stance. It could, in somebody's eyes, that you could, if if you're doing a lot of mass killings of yourself, you're saying that's okay, but no, it's only. No. If, in fact, and it's not. It's Kelly not. Lewis, that's it why was we a have black to stand up. Who did the killing? That's why we, I say it was a black person who did the killing. So that was my thing. That yeah. why are we allowing all this? Black on black gang violence, it, it, and think it's all we, right. In, in the case of this one, it was somebody uh, that was uh, undercover police, but he was still black, so it didn't matter. Yes. Um, I think you know we have a lot of white on white crime because it's more whites, and also they kill each other, so people tend to kill who are near them. But yes, you're right, yes. we did not have the black on black violence during the civil rights movement. We were not like men. it is now, right? Yeah, not like you know, it is now. Was, you know. Right, not like now because it was not drugs. But how did drugs get in this country? You know, a lot of this is drug inspired. As people have gotten drugs, I mean, and it seemed like to me after the Black Panthers came and really started talking black power and black empowerment, um, they all got wiped out. You know, through, um, FBI and so forth type initiatives. Many of them ended up in prison or on the run or expatriates and underground. And in their place became the Crips and the Bloods, particularly here in Los Angeles. And that took, that was all right for a while, but then they started getting drugs and guns. And a lot of these things they found out, you know, had been shipped in through the government, the CIA. So uh, it's like it's a conspiracy to help destroy the black race. And who better to do it? It's like they outsource the racism when they have each other killing each other over gang territory that they don't really own over um, the drugs. And all these years I worked here in Los Angeles, I wasn't even aware of the drugs or the, uh, or the different gang territories. And I went out at 2 and 3 in the morning because I worked uh, a second shift that was a command post. 
And I thought nothing of it. And now that I'm older and researching, I just said, Lord, thank you for your protection. Wow. Because I didn't know I was working in such dangerous wow. areas. Yeah. But, you know, wow. when you come from Detroit, you have an attitude. It, I don't call it swag or whatever, but you have this saying, game recognized game. And I was never afraid. I'd go and walk between oh, gang and they would like part like the Red Sea. I would say, where am I so-and-so live? It's 2 and 3 in the morning. they walk me to the house. <laughs> so I said, Lord, thank you for giving me yeah. that type of fearlessness. And now I'm more fearful as an older person. I don't like to go out at night. And so I said to myself, I'm going to stop being afraid. When it's your time, it's your time. You just have yeah. to live as fully as you can. Who knew that? The, I'm sure the people that were at the Bible study, and on Wednesday, that same day it happened, it was my birthday, and I had gone mm. to this church. I just saw a sign, and I went in, and it was four women and a minister. I sat and listened to about a half hour until they ended their Bible study, and they shared their testimonies. I said, now, that could have just easily been me, except I was in the black area, and I did see a white guy down there going into the place where they sold blunts. You know, uh, marijuana is legal (laughs) in in, uh, Los Angeles now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I said, what is this? When did we get where we can't even be safe in church? Oh, that's, yeah. It made me think about the bombing of the one the four little girls got. That's a, but but you, and then I heard recently, maybe a year ago, with a domestic violence issue, uh, I don't know, was it an estranged husband just came in and shot up a church, uh, domestic violence related. It just, even that used to be, nobody would touch the church. And now people, you know, they rob churches and, you you got uh, people shooting up in churches, so right. And schools and schools and schools. Years ago, nobody shot up a school. Right, like Sandy or a theater. And, um, you go to a movie now, a movie theater. Yeah, the theater. I'm always suspect when I go to. Uh, I go to the white theater. Sometimes I'm always kind of a little suspect and worried. And um, the thing that is making it so bad is the gun control, and that the Congress won't pass. Anything against it? I'm hearing that the NRA has a you know strong lobbying and control over the Congress with that, but there needs to be some type of gun control. But then the polls showed in 2013 that 50% opposed gun control and 49% favored gun control. So that shows that we have a mixed message in terms of what the public wants when it comes to gun control. What can we do how many more people have to be killed? And then what kind of bothers me so far about this case is the media, how when this guy, Christopher Dorn, when he killed, uh, you know, he was the black police out here in Los Angeles who wrote that manifesto, and he killed, I think, uh, his boss's daughter, and, he, you know, he killed uh, some people before, they called him, uh-huh. but they called him up in San Bernardino, and I was turning in L.A. Blues 3, which I ended up working at. She was already hiding up in um, San Bernardino Mountains, my character. So, mm-hmm. I said, oh, my goodness, I was turning my book in, and I <laughs> turned the news on. I thought it was a oh movie. Oh, my goodness. Said, what is this? Yeah. As they circled this man, but they burned him to a crisp. They did not yes. give him a chance to have no, the process no, go to no. court. But they are already trying to claim mental health for this. Dylan, who has admitted to his crime, 
He planned it for six months, said he wanted to start a race riot. You know, so there's always when a black person uh, oh, commits well, a crime that, and yeah. in the media, high profile mm-hmm. like this, they mm-hmm. paint them totally different and they get treated different. Yeah. It's a little Unabomber, you know, they're kind of toddling. Uh, pampering him, it seemed like to me, but I think they did finally come down on him with his uh, hearing, and he did get life or either the death sentence. So it is a difference. I mean, we have we can see that we go to jail more easily yes. for lesser yeah. crimes. That's yeah. why we have so many people in uh, jail that are African American. Um, it's just a whole difference that the media even spins it because the media is basically white. We don't have the diverse of a media. I've been watching the no. TV one with Roland S. Martin, so I do get the black slant on things now. Yeah, TV one or BT, that's pretty much your options. <laughs> you want, and there yeah. are some. There's the um, there's this show I forget the whatever Greeks they they try to do a, a balanced perspective um i think they're on youtube i don't know if they come on tv but there are a few shows you can come across it but the major major ones that people watch they do feed um almost like that black people are more negative or violent uh you do get that message it comes across loud and clear um right. and, and again the only way really to probably balance that is we have to more more people of color, diverse backgrounds. Well, they're going to have to just go in and like um, I can't think of her name. Who owns TV One? Uh, I can't think of her name. But more people are going to have to do like a Tyler Perry or if Oprah. Oprah doesn't do news, but to do that, her show, her her station airs different types of shows. But right. more of that. More and, of that um, has to happen. Also have mm-hmm. Aspire out here. I don't know if you have Aspire there in Magic Johnson. That's his station. And they'll have the Route 100 where they have a lot of black people who have, you know, and they're under 45, 25 to 45 who have made major changes. You know, some have developed apps. Uh, some are working with young men. You know, it's a lot of good programming we're beginning to get, but we need more. It's not enough yet. But we're, no, we're getting there no. farther than we were five years ago, so it's yeah. a big change. Right. But we still have to keep going. Can, I wanted to ask you, when you listen to your social work and L.A. Blues get ready to come out with the thing with the with the cop and they didn't give him a chance, um, have you ever thought about using any of your social work experiences uh, to create a, mo- a a novel or a movie. I'm sure you've had a ton of experiences, but have you ever right. thought about using any of them to, to, to create, base it on a novel or a movie? Yes, that's what L.A. Blues 1, 2, and 3 is about. It was from my social work experiences. I made a, I said, a what if. What if one of the clients I had was sitting on the other side of my desk and I'm just looking at her and don't really know. I just see her mask. But what was her life? So I came up with this character, Z. I've had more people write me. When it, I didn't write a book in 2014 due to uh, some family issues that were going on. But they have been looking for Z. They asked for Z. They loved Z. She was a, a foster child. Her mother was a crip. Um and the part that came from my social work experience, one of the scenes was where I went out on a case. Uh, I was in a command post 
it was the emergency response in the community. I was in the Eric project where they were trying to see if social workers rode at night with the police, what would happen. It was in 1984, I believe. No, 85. It was 1985. I went out on a case, and I said, as long as I live, I will never forget this case. And this, I'll have it in Chapter 2, I think, uh, or Chapter 1 of L.A. Blues, because I have a long prologue, three chapters in the prologue. But um, this father had killed his this, his wife, the mother of three children. Mm-hmm. So we had to place the three children in the middle of the night. But instead of telling it from a social worker's point of view and vantage point, I told it from the police officer who was female. She had an alcohol problem. Her partner was, and they were very close. Her partner was Asian because this is a very multicultural type uh, city. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting killed, and as a result, she was fired because they found she was shot too. They both were shot, so that was right at the opening of L.A. Blues. But yes, I took a lot of my life experiences <laughs> and worked them into it, and then I knew foster mothers. So I, I showed a good foster home because I've seen so many bad foster homes in the writing mm. of the young people whose books I've edited. I hate to say it, I started noticing a pattern that I was editing a lot of books of former children of oh. drug addicts. A lot of our famous writers we got out here now, I don't want to call their names, but they were raised by uh, crackheads. And oh. <laughs> that's the show, what God got for you, he'll make a rock grow flowers if you have to. A lot of the kids, mm. a lot of fiction I worked on, and the, and I would get to know the writers. They would tell me so, and that helped me write L.A. Blues too. From editing, I edited a lot of street fiction that became Essence bestsellers, and you know sold quite well on Amazon, Amazon bestsellers, and so that helped me pick up the younger voice by working with younger writers. And I wrote it in first person too, so I was able to kind of sip her age and push it up from the years that I was actually a social worker. I started her, she was in the 90s when she was growing up. And I actually started it at the L.A. riot, which I was out there making home calls during the L.A. riots. I had come home that night and went to work the next day, almost uh. got burned myself, almost got burned up because I couldn't hardly find a street to drive up. There were mm. walls of fire on every street I would drive up. And I said, you know, that's what I say. Looking back, I would be so fearless and I'm so dedicated to my job. And uh, that was the day they even sent out a memo. We looked for the memo. They told the white workers they didn't even have to go to work. They didn't have to do nothing. And for years we looked for that memo. We should have kept it. <laughs> but oh my we goodness. were told to go out. It was so much racism on my job. And so you mm. were dealing with the community, trying to keep the homes from. My big thing was they would take children out of our homes and break up families and would not give them back, whereas I would see in the white uh, areas. I worked in Beverly Hills when I worked in the West L.A. area twice. My first year and then my last three years was in West L.A., which covered um, Beverly Hills. They could have sexual abuse. The man could stay in the house. There would be no charges, but I've known mm. of in the black families where there were charges against uh, stepfathers, and the girls would recant the story sometime. It might not even be anything going on. And they would still serve a couple of years before they would let them out. And you, it, yeah. it's racism is mm. systemic in this country, and it's in yes. in the police department. Even though yes. what Christopher Dorn was did was wrong, the black cop killer, some of the things in his manifesto was telling the truth. 
We we and, um, I mean it's so it's so embedded. It's it's really sad. There's probably not one person who hasn't been touched by it and who doesn't and their thoughts hasn't been their thoughts haven't been slanted. Not one. It's that pervasive. It really is that pervasive. That you can be have racist thoughts, prejudice and you don't even think you have them. That's how it is. Oh, no. You don't even think you have them. You'll say no, 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 not me. That's how that. I think it, I don't think this boy for him to do that. He has heard that he's twenty one years old. They had that much hate time. They're raping black, white women. How they? No, it's by choice. It used to be a black man couldn't even look at a white woman like in the Emmett Till case. These are women who choose to be with black men. The interracial uh, rate has gone up from was like four or five percent. I just watched Light Girls, Black Girls on Oprah, the Bill Dukes documentary. It's gone up to almost like ninety-eight percent interracial marriages. So these are white women who choose to be with black men. This is not a case, and vice versa. Black women are marrying white men. So why? Did he feel this? But that means that that thing of the white woman is pure and the black man cannot sully her, that goes back to slavery. That's like the Willie Lynch syndrome. And it's um, for him to feel that way, he's heard that either at the dinner table or at, you know, in his community. There's no way you would have that much hatred build up. No, yeah, that's what, that, in any situation like that, I always think, they, you picked that up at home, or right. you you hung or out with your a group. school system or somewhere, and, and then they have the Confederate flag, which is always to me a reminder that they miss. Uh, we wish we were in Dixie. They miss slavery. Slavery yes. is the biggest crime that this nation ever committed. How can you have enslaved people and have them work for free, and don't want to give us our reparations and haven't given them? The Jews have gotten their reparations. The Indians have gotten their reparations. But we haven't gotten ours, which is why when I look at all the problems of poverty and unemployment, I say, how can we get ahead with them having five, six, seven generations jump? They've got money to hand down. They've got money to um, hand down property to their children, property that our ancestors built for them. And some of us, you know, have had some property down in Louisiana and different places, and that property is valuable. And I talked to a writer who was saying that she has a book that she wants to bring to me where it's a lot of people who have had property that has been handed down. So that's more the exception. That's not the norm. The Bible says that a wise man would leave an inheritance for his children, but how can you leave an inheritance? When you're starting at not even ground zero, you're starting in negative 50, you're starting at death. There's a lot of times yeah. if your parents are poor, it's mm-hmm. very hard to pull up from that. Mm-hmm. They say pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and we've seen some great exceptions with Jay-Z and Oprah and um, Beyonce. But you can't do any better than your entire race is doing. If you're if the biggest part of your race is struggling and have the and since the 2008 reception, I mean uh, recession, so many people lost their property. And that's where a lot of our wealth was in our property. Then, how can you feel like we are 
moving up when so many people are not. We are each other's keep, brothers and sisters keeper, and that was the question mm-hmm. asked in uh, asked in Genesis uh, when he when God asked Abel. I mean, when Cain killed Abel, where's your brother? He said, I'm not my brother's keeper, but we are our brother's keeper. And that's the end of the Bible, that we are our brother's keeper. We need Mm -hmm. to look out for each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, so many races are doing well here in California. I look at them come here, get businesses, get loans. I'm talking about uh, Asians, different, you know, Korean, Chinese, uh, Vietnamese. And it's very difficult for African Americans to get loans now much harder, even with the Small Business Association. And then credit has become a big issue um, where they're looking at your credit even when you apply for a job or if you try to rent a car. So you've got to have well, your yeah. credit. And if you yeah. got hit by the 2008 recession, most of our credit is in the toilet. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so it's, um, it's really something. I didn't mean to just talk about these things. No, no, these no, are no, the no. things that affect us as a writer. Yes. And and come, yes, and they and they come into our stories. Which, as I was listening to you, it made me think about the ebony tree. Before we talk about hostage of lies, can you tell off the shelf listeners when ebony the ebony tree when it it when it takes place? I know it's across several generations, and give us a synopsis of the ebony tree. Okay, well, The Ebony Tree was my first novel. I had written short stories and poems prior to that, and I had won $1,000 in Ebony's first contest in 1989, which made me say, hmm, because their, their premise was, we know there must be some black writers out there, but we're not seeing any. That was before the explosion of black books and self-publishing mm-hmm. and e-books. Mm-hmm. And so out of 3,000-something entries I won for my short story, Valley of the Shadow, which is in my short story collection, a, a place called Home, and it's also in Saturday Morning with another story, The Garden of Forgiveness. But um, I wrote The Ebony Tree a year after my mother died, and I tried to loosely follow oh. the lives of the women in my mother's family. And I said that at the end of their lives, there would be no outcry, no anything, because there was so much silence, and we had a habit of not passing down the stories that come within the black family. And it helped me to understand my mother, know her strengths and her weaknesses. Wow. And you know, I put together the little stories that she did tell me, and then I made up some, and then I went back to my grandmother, and I followed the mother-daughter thing of separation. My grandmother had gone to work and lived on the property with the white family that she worked for. And my mother didn't really go live with her until she was 12. And she lived with the grandparents. So there was always that disconnect. And it was repeated with um, my sister and my mother. And even though they were in the same house, it was always kind of uh, not the closeness. And she had a little more closeness with me being the second daughter, a lot of closeness with her last daughter. Then I've seen the same history repeated with my oldest daughter. So wow. it just, and I, I kind of addressed that in Hostage of Lies. So it just, you know, breaking these cycles. And I think back to slavery, how it had to be hard for a woman to get too close to her daughter. She protected her sons because mm. she didn't want them to be from lynching and so forth. But with the daughters, they expected them to just be grown and be women. They had to have 12 if the master decided to. 
uh, have sex with them. Then the mothers had to just turn her head the other way, and men had to turn their head the way, other way if the master came in and had sex with his wife. They never knew mm. whether the child would be his or the master's. And some family systems managed still. There was a family system in slavery. You know, I did a lot of research on it, and there were families that stayed together. They married, they stayed together somehow on the same plantations. But a lot of families were splintered and sold from one another, which always to this day I would say sometimes you don't know if you're marrying your your, deep, your distant relative. Yeah, that's true. And I met some people who look like somebody I know. I said, I seem like I know that person, you know. <laughs> and I was on a plane going to a family reunion in Washington, D.C. with my youngest son at the time. He was 17. And I kept looking at this thing. I said, she sure looks familiar. And then when we got to the family reunion, lo and behold, she was <laughs> my relative. <laughs> and lived here in Los Angeles. And we began to visit and stay in touch for a few years. But So we as oh African Americans, we've been um, not only robbed of our culture, we've been robbed of a lot of, now a lot of things have survived in spite of, like Ebonics, a lot of that still goes back to Africa, the speech, uh, the way, I go to an Ebonics conference, I have missed the last couple of years, but at the conference, they show all the speech patterns that we had that come from Africa, even our time. Mm. I'd be going. Um, he been he been done did that. <laughs> and we have a different way of putting our sentences together when we get comfortable and we're not code switching and talking for mainstream society. <laughs> but yet I see on the news, mainstream society have almost stolen every expression that black people yeah. have, even in the movies. Yes, yes. It say my bad and all these yes, different things. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. What would yes, they do? And yes. then the lady, uh, what's her name, who just was passing for black? <laughs> that reminds me of uh, Black Like Me, John. Oh, that book, yeah, that it came out in the seventies. Mm-hmm. No, it came out in the sixties, and I met him as a speaker when I was the first white. I mean, the first black student at an all white school, and mm-hmm. it was he came and his he was blind. That experiment, turning his skin, had turned him blind. And and I'm saying, I wondered if that's a Freudian slip where I said I was the first white. But I had to act white to blend in. I didn't act white. They said, oh, my goodness, your speech is so this and your speech is so that. (laughs) And then when Martin Luther King got killed that year I was there, I said, well, would you say that he doesn't have an accent? They didn't call it Ebonics. They called it they called it I, I, that I had an accent, a southern accent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when Martin Luther King got up there and spoke in his southern accent and his black ebonics, oh, well, see, he's a great man, which she, she did understand that. But we <laughs> a lot of times hide our blackness yeah. when it's the blackness and the melanin. Like um, I think of the one, he just passed B.B. King, and he was in a book I just worked on. He was a good friend to this girl's grandmother, and the book is called uh, With With These Hands, A Country Girl C- Comes to Town. And the opening prologue is where she met B.B. King, and they both were the children of sharecroppers, and they both became successful. She became a successful hairdresser who owned several shops, and she started the hair weave industry in Chicago. And, of course, we know how B.B. King came. But it was that black sound that made him famous. It wasn't him trying to act white. Mm-hmm. But that whole year they tried to pound into me 
how to act like a white person. I was so happy when I got back to be. And then when Martin Luther King got shot, I went home. I just wanted to see black faces because at that time, I'll never forget it. Someone hollered into the school bus that I would ride, yeah, yeah, we glad Martin Luther King is dead. And that's all I said, oh, Lord, let me get out of here before I hurt somebody. <laughs> and, I, and I only had a couple more months there. But, it, of course, that was a big change in my life. I believe that's what's given me the courage to do the things I have to do now. Mm. And, you know, it, I don't want to do a lot of them. It's like I say, what am I doing this for? I need to, but it just keeps, you know... <laughs> When they say too much is given, much is required. I can say, I just want to write my own books and mind my own business. But then a book will come. I'll be up all night working on somebody else's book. Um. I put my whole heart into it. And people can tell I love. If I put love into your book, oh, my goodness, you're sitting on the New York Times. It makes me mad. I got writers sitting on the New York Times, and I'm not on it. (laughs) (laughs) But I put so much love into it. You get on there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, are you are you taking mine. on are you taking on new clients if somebody's interested in working with you are you are you taking on new clients because I remember the last time uh, you were on off the shelf I thought you said you were going to focus spend more time focusing on your own novels and you were going in a different area are you are <laughs> you taking on new clients as from an editing literary agent perspective? Or right now, are you are you now focusing more on your own work? I'm editing, um, and I'm I'm still editing, and I have the people whose book deals that are still selling, and some of their books have been put in mass market, so I have to still handle, you know, the royalty statements and so forth. And if I find a good book, and if I find an opening, I will. But right now, things have all the imprints at the black houses have closed. And that thing that I said I was going to focus on my writing, I never did. But I wrote L.A. Blues 1, 2, and 3 while I was still editing and still being an agent. So that just lets me know that that's my destiny. When God has a plan for your life, you cannot, as sort of like uh, Jonah tried not to go to Nineveh, you have mm. to do what you have to do. This is the calling. I were also do the prison ministry. I swore I wasn't going to do that. I looked wow. at, I've done, I don't know how many books for people in prison, black men. And and some of them, two of them, I've had to do two extra books where they'll say, that you missed this part, and so I'm working for free. But I, I think this is something that's needed. No one, literature is a repository of our culture, and this is a behind-the-scenes job. But the more books we have out there, when I go to the BEA, which I haven't gone in about four or five years now, oh, it might even be more than that. It's here in L.A. I haven't gone. I used to go to Chicago, New York. I haven't gone. I see rows and rows of books of Latino books, and you know, uh, they have really blown up. And black bookstores, I used they're you know kind of getting defunct or they're closing, and they don't have yeah. as many books. We used to have a lot of bookstores. I used to make enough money every two months just selling my books to the black bookstores, and now they're closing. Um, after borders closed, that caused a big ripple effect into the publishing industry, and yeah. they laid off a lot of the black editors at the big houses, that Random House, uh, one that the one I knew at Grand Central. She's no longer with them. She is with a smaller company. Um, it's like... 
the black bookstores, but people, we have to kind of go back to where we were. I used to be self-published, was selling more books, could account for where my money went. So mm. that is what I'm going back to. I just put up Hostage of Lies as an e-book. I got the rights back from the publisher back in 2013. And I put it under the original title, but now I got a new cover, and I went back to Hostage of Lies since I created that title. And um, it's... Um, Really something we're going through in the publishing industry, but the independent office, there's one named H.M. Ward. Uh, I think she's out of Europe, out of London, I think. She was at this conference, and I've listened to her tape. She has sold 10 million self-published books since 2011. So you can't tell that many with a big publisher. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's encouraging. So I'm helping people set up their own companies and publish their books. That's kind of where my new... We're constantly reinventing ourselves in this business. Mm-hmm. If you want to survive, you can't stick with, I mean, five years ago I was making enough as an agent. I gave up editing for a while. But as things have been changing, I've changed. And one thing I can always have my mainstay on editing, and you can go to uh, com and see my books and my blog and my radio show and get in touch with me that way too. Okay. Is there an inspiration behind Hostage of Lies? What inspired you to write Hostage of Lies? Oh, just all the family secrets in my family, and they got solved after I wrote it. It's the family secrets of my family, the family secrets of other families I knew because I was a social worker, and everybody told me their business. So it's a combo. It was more fictional than Ebony Tree. Ebony Tree was fictional because you, you're not there to relive the conversation. Some of it my older sister told me, some of it my grandmother told me. So I had put little, I had to stretch that and use literary license with that. But Hostage of Lies was a healing book for me because it was just filled with my secrets, my family secrets. Uh, secrets of different families I had met, and now I'm doing the prequel to Hostage of Lies. That's what I'm working on. The letter that she found in the attic about her mm. uh, great great grandparents, and so I'm work- telling the story that happened. And I might even been her great 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 grandparents, but I'm telling that story, and I'm having to do a lot of research for it, so I don't know when it'll be through. Who is Reverend Godboat? And and does that does his does that surname is there any significance to the name? I said, Why would uh, you yes. come up with a name like that? <laughs> oh, I saw one in one of the cases I had. I used to get a lot of my oh. names out of the cases. Oh, but okay. I gave the backstory that her grand his her father wait, her father, Reverend Guybolt, was saying his father told him a story that his father had been or great that he had been hit by lightning. And didn't die, so he called himself God. Though you know how black people oh, always okay. use names in a colorful way, but a lot of them, uh, if you got a funny looking face, they call you Aunt Eater Man. I grew up with a boo boo, a bird bath. <laughs> I'm laughing oh. when I think of the names we grew up, but I love it. It it was a writer's heaven, and I was one of those adventurous kids. Uh, back then, they allowed you to roam freely all over the neighborhood and. Uh, and people didn't get kidnapped, and kids weren't getting kidnapped. And, um, mm. So in between the roaming, I would be reading, too, and I was kind of a leader. I always came up with the ideas of the bad things we were going to do. So I can never say I was influenced by anywhere where they said, oh, Messi, let's go do this. No, I was the one, hey, today we're going to go 
hit up this grapeyard. You know, people had grapevines. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, maybe that's why I can work with criminals today and not be afraid. But I wasn't. I've never committed a crime. I don't have any record. But I do like crime fiction now. And, that's, and I like seeing books that show you a different side of life and show you, take you by the hand and take you into a world that you don't know about. Mm. Now, Miss Nefertiti, oh, can you tell us then, tell us a little before we talk about Nefertiti, can you tell us, what's Reverend Godbold like? Well, he's a good minister. He's a straight-laced man. And as years have gone by, I've grown to respect and love him in a way. But at the time, I didn't like him when I wrote it. When I look back, but that was 20 years ago. Ah. That was in 97 when I wrote it. So that's almost 20 years ago. But I see him differently now. And when I know the family secret that went on with them, you know, I don't want to give it away, but it was okay. a bad, that was a lot to swallow what he had to take, that Nefertiti, mm. you know, the issue with Nefertiti, not being his <laughs> uh, kind of... We see it now okay. all the time on TV. By a lot, he wasn't her biological father. Right, okay. but he thought he was. That was one of the okay. big, that was the, no, he knew he wasn't because he'd oh. been over the service, and that was the big secret. And the big secret was he was her brother. His brother was her father. Oh. So, but they had love with the same woman, and ah. she married the oldest brother, but she never really stopped loving Uncle Tiger, but Uncle Tiger wasn't stable, whereas um, Reverend Godbo was stable. So, giving away the secret spoiler. <laughs> spoiler uh, what, what, but, but 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 still, uh, I mean, you still want to read and get to know the characters more. What's, so Reverend Godbo, he's more a, a traditional type of guy, uh, right. uh, um, follows the rules. You know, doesn't just lives more of a traditional life, and I guess his brother is a little more edgy. Now, Nerfatiti, why? What? What? What is she like? She's got two of these guys coming after her. What's so charming about her? Um. Well, she's um, dark skin and has this real bushy hair and light eyes. She's very attractive. She makes me think of the woman in Daughters of the Dust, the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen the movie Daughters of the Dust? Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't nat- seen the movie, no. Okay. Okay. And they were all on the North Carolina islands and, you know, speaking of color, and they were making a choice to move to the mainland. And the, that's who Nefertiti reminded me of. And, that she, and then I saw, um, I had a picture on my wall of Nefertiti, a black Nefertiti. So I said, oh, that would be her name because I had a different name for her. I said she was a black queen. And so that was kind of, and then I gave Pharaoh, one of the um, lovers who was the father of her child that was put up for adoption, I gave him the name um, Pharaoh. And then she also married Isaac. You know, I took that from the Bible. Isaac was a writer, though, and he was a playwright, and they married, but he got crazy when he started making money as a playwright and started cheating. And Nefertiti left him and married a guy who was an octoroon. But everybody thought he was white because, from all appearances, appearances he was uh, black. I mean, white. But he had found out before he met, before he fell in love with Nefertiti, that he was black. And you know, they had a black 
grandparent. I think that's your octoroon. You have out of eight grandparents, and one is black, and then you're that other one. It's not mulatto, but anyway. So that was a family secret because around that time, a lot of people had been passing. They were being found out when the children were being born black. <laughs> but yeah. in this case, it was just he found it out when he went back to the South and was doing some research and ended up, and he ended up leaving his white wife and wanted to live his black life. I said, it made me think of mm. Moses, how he left his life of comfort. Yeah, and, yeah, and then yeah. back to the lady who was passing for uh, black, you know, because she says her boys are black, the one that was over the NAACP. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they just found out that she's not <laughs> white. But there's a lot of white privilege, so it's, it takes a stand to be on the um, get down, yeah. as they say, with the brothers. It is real. It is no <laughs> joke being black, I can tell you. I got no, yeah. years of, I fight all the time. Sometimes I get so tired of fighting. I, I, I mean, I would be, I would be, the only difference between me and the homeless is I pull out this pen, I go up against governments, corporations. Fight, fight, fight. I have to rest from fighting. You will not, yeah. as a black person, get things easily. Everything you do, you have to do harder. Like when I was a social worker, I had uh, eight times the cases of the white writers, and when I left, it took eight writers, eight social workers to do my job. I've heard that from too many people that are black that have been engineers or accountants. When they're not there, it takes so many people to do their job because you're expected to do much more. So you yeah. don't get no handouts and no shade trees to sit up under when you're black. Mm, no, that's, that's that is true, and that's <laughs> one. I've, you got to do. You got to work twice as hard, and and you still might get skipped over. But um, yeah, you got to do twice as much, work twice as hard, and it. it, it so even when you, that's the thing. That's what I think. Some people get frustrated. You're like, I'm doing just as much as this other person. I keep getting passed over. And if I do twice as much, I still get passed over. So I'm skipping. I'm I'm tired of of playing this game, and that's why we have to do like what Magic Johnson and Oprah. You ha- we have to own more of our own stuff. We have to take ownership. We which brings me, and I didn't even think of that as I was getting ready to ask you this question. But it leads into this next question now on Amazon.com. Synopsis says it's about hostage of lies. As the formerly owned chattel of white America, there seems to be a propensity among the characters in the novel to own people, places, things. In one instance, this is exemplified where the character goes so far as to steal air property from his brother. I wanted to ask you, why do you think or why did you choose to focus on that? This Well, people, I just said we have to own more stuff. Where people feel right. like um, we even have from the adoption, you know, we can't own people. We try to control them. You know, we, as particularly as black women and mothers of sons, we're trying to hold them and make sure they don't get hurt. But we can't own people, places, or things. And uh, Reverend Godbolt, he had stolen this um, clock, and he had used a lot of stolen money from the family to build his church on. Now that was the part I didn't like about him, <laughs> but uh, he—I just think that I've seen the materialism. I watched it in my family, you know, and it's a beautiful thing to have nice things. Don't get me wrong, but there was like a competition: who had this, who got the most, yeah, who spent the most, yeah. you know. And we were upwardly bound, coming from kind of the story you read about the little country town or water town in Detroit that I grew up in, Delray. 
And so I and I grew up in a family that turned out to be pretty successful. I have a brother. I think they had about eight McDonald's, and you know, and and a sister who's traveled around the world, and another brother who was doing well at IBM, and you know, one that was a Vietnam vet who's been a captain of the fire department. So I come from a family I'm very proud of, and you know, mm-hmm. and I and I we lived in a neighborhood where a lot of men went to prison. And a lot of them didn't have fathers. I had a father, and we didn't have money, but that father put you up like a couple of notches because really stories are about the war between the classes. That put us in a higher class just having a father (laughs) and Mm -hmm. having a mother who was decent and wasn't a drunk. I grew up next door to a neighbor whose mother was a drunk, but the father was such a good man. I mean, he kept that family together and... I just recently heard the middle son died. So, um, but then he was the head of the house. She didn't work. And I'm sure he knew if he left, the children would have went to the far, to the four winds, three winds. And, but they all turned out very well. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up at a time where people did have fathers in the home. There were some that weren't. But it's still the ones who weren't were the ones who ended up in prison. The guys, there is mm-hmm. a high, high correlation between, and it's yes. to this day, of Yep. Men that end up in prison who grew up without a father. Father would yes. break you, would whip you behind much more than a mother would. Mm. Yes. And uh, um, again, with Father's Day coming, I mean, I just we often think about the mother. We know how important the mom is, but I'm glad you brought that up again. I, I've seen it, yes. a fa- and not not just a father in the home, but a good father, a good father yes. in the home uh, is. It, I just think it is, it's absolutely a must. We only have about three minutes left. I wanted to ask you, is there another book in the works? I know you're busy editing and you're still doing your literary agent work, but are you working on another book? You said people want, yes, want to I'm see? Yes, I'm working on yes. L.A. Blues and the prequel to Hostage of Lies that's going to start in slavery, that's going to be in slavery. And I might make it an epic generational book. I'm taking my time with that one, but L.A. Blues, I'm, four, I'm hoping to have out by uh, the end of the year. Different people have read me, and one guy, he wrote me, and I think it was the highest compliment he paid. He said, Z is a beast. You know, her name is Zipporah, and mm-hmm. um, her nickname is Z. And she has fought cartels. <laughs> she has gone through so much. I get weak when I'm writing her. I think that's what took me. I had to take a break, too. She has gone through so much. She has been shot. Then she did go to rehab, recovered. She has been. She's had hits out on her by crooked police. And then she's had the mm. FBI, crooked police. They sent her to Brazil. She's been down in Brazil, and I'm gonna send her back to Brazil. And her brother <laughs> is a kingpin. <laughs> it's a crip. So she's my fun character. She's my superhero. She's my Pam Greer, my Coffee Brown. Okay, <laughs> I okay. love. Her. We need some heroes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Black okay. women, I feel that we're heroes, and we need to be reminded that we're heroes. heroes are you on any? There you, are you on any social media networks? If so, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Maxine E. Thompson. I'm on Facebook. I think it's Maxine uh, underscore Thompson. And um, I haven't gotten on Instagram. I signed up, but I haven't done that yet. And then I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, those are the three major ones I use. And they can find me at M-A-X-T-H-O at A-O-L or MaxineThompsonBooks.com 
or MaxineThompson.com. Okay. We have, as usual, the, the, the show has just blown by. We covered a lot of topics today for those who might have come in midstream or near the end of today's show. After it, it finishes streaming, it will be up here at uh, Blog Talk Radio off the shelf. You can come back and listen to the show in its entirety, and I encourage you to to tell your friends, your colleagues, anybody who loves books, who loves great, great story, uh, to uh, listen to today's show. Uh, with Maxine Thompson here on Off the Shelf Radio. And I know for those who are looking forward to uh, the next sequel to L.A. Blues and Hearts of Lies, Maxine just let us know. She revealed on today's show that she is working on those books as she even continues to edit other writers' works. We want to thank Maxine Thompson for taking time out of her day to tune in from California, sunny California, on the day before Father's Day. And I want to say happy Father's Day to everybody once again, to the fathers who are good fathers, good loving fathers, and they really care for their family. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and happy, happy, blessed Father's Day. Remember, as I always tell you, you are awesome. You are absolutely incredible. You are so valued. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Please come back next Saturday. Tune in off the shelf every Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City time. I will, uh, Maxine, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you so much, and thank your listeners, and have a great day, and have a happy Father's Day. Thanks again so much, Denise. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.